Hello and welcome to the latest Red Star Bulletin. Today I'll be looking at the latest news from the front line in Ukraine before moving on to consider some of the wider stories that are related to and going on around the conflict in Ukraine, specifically the bombing in Istanbul, how that might relate to what is going on with the Russia-NATO war. I'll also be talking about the potential peace talks that were held yesterday in Ankara between uh, Sergei Narishkin of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service and William Burns, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and also the contradictory statements given out by the uh, cocaine clown posse in Kiev, and what this means in terms of who's pulling whose strings at the moment. I'll also draw attention towards some recent comments made by the Communist Party of the Russian Federation and their uh, economic and social mobilization plan that they've put forward that they say will uh, win the war far better than the uh, cautious policies of the government. And also some interesting statements made by the first secretary of the Communist Party of Ukraine, Pietro Simonenko, at the 22nd meeting of Communist and Workers' Parties that was held recently in Cuba. Now, the big news for the last few days has been, of course, the Russian withdrawal from Kherson and their pulling back of their forces to the uh, eastern bank of the Dnieper River. Now, this, of course, created a firestorm of claim and counterclaim as to what was going on and whether there was going to be some kind of sellout. It seems to be clear from what is going on now that the picture on that is a little more solid than that it is a military maneuver that is the idea and the tactics that is pushed for by the new overall commander of the Ukraine theater of war, uh, Sergei Surovikin, who has, from the earliest uh, days of his appointment and his first public interview, stated that the situation in Kherson was uh, tense and difficult, and that it made little military sense, as he said later in his televised uh, sit-down with Sergei Shoigu, the Minister of Defence, to keep uh, tens of thousands of men, as, re- as many as uh, 30,000, I believe, Russian troops, on the west bank of the Dnieper, facing ever greater supply issues, and facing a Ukrainian force that was going to ceaselessly attack them. And so what, uh, of course, Surovikin seems to be doing is withdrawing forces from there to concentrate and shore up front lines elsewhere. And it seems that the Russians are shortening the front line in order to uh, possibly do a push for the final clearing out of Ukrainian forces from Donetsk, People's Republic, and also to uh, secure themselves for a potential offensive into December or maybe as later on as January of next year. The Russian armed forces seem to be in no particular rush at this time to carry this out. They seem to be more than happy to take the time to reorganize themselves, dig in further, and defend against the endless Ukrainian attempts to break through, which are or have been growing weaker each time. If you recall, back in late August and early September, there was an attempt to break through in the Kherson region, which was repelled with very heavy Ukrainian losses. You had that Russian withdrawal from up near Kharkov, which even though militarily there wasn't a defeat there, it very much was a political defeat because of the way it was handled. It was very poorly handled by the political leadership of the Russian Federation in that they didn't 
prepare the ground for it. They didn't um, seemingly achieve much of a consensus amongst themselves about it, given that key people within the political and military leadership, such as Kadyrov and Prigozhin, were publicly at least hopping mad about it. And it left a general sense of drift and also that the military leadership either didn't know what it was doing or was uh, capitulating. And where there was no official statement, of course, rumors and speculations filled the void. This time, it seems that the lesson was learnt by Surovikin and others in that they prepared the ground for the withdrawal and actually went on television and explained it. So, much better handled, but still, both the Kharkov withdrawal and the Kherson withdrawal overall are political defeats, not military one, because the Russian military hasn't actually been defeated in the field by the Ukrainian military each time it is withdrawn from somewhere. You see, uh, if you recall, in the uh, period where they had troops around Kiev, when those troops were withdrawn, it was as part of a potentially to motivate the uh, Ukrainian side to agree to a bargain, which didn't happen due to the intervention of the British and the Americans and the Europeans, of course. Don't forget that, as always, they are enthusiastic or at least going along with the ultimate aim of the British and the Americans, which is, of course, regime change inside Moscow itself and the removal of the government headed by Vladimir Putin and its replacement with some collection of oligarchs. That's their overall aim, and it's still the aim that they are sticking to. And this is why it would seem that any peace talks are going to go absolutely nowhere because the aim of American foreign policy as Putin actually has said himself on numerous occasions, hasn't actually changed since uh, around about 1992. If you recall, that is when the first uh, iteration of what came to be known as neocon thinking, uh, the Wolfowitz Memorandum, which was first written in 92 and reported on in the New York Times at the moment that it was actually released. And this became the doctrine for the United States in terms of its foreign and so-called defense policy ever since then. And with changes of administration and changes in personnel, it doesn't change the policy, that is. And that policy, as articulated all the way back in 1992 and revised on numerous occasions since then, was that no single entity should be, that is a state entity, should be allowed to exist on the territories of the former Soviet Union, and that the policy of the United States should be towards forever keeping the successor states of the Soviet Union weak, divided, and incapable of unifying themselves in order to potentially threaten the interests of the United States. A document from all the way back in 1992 makes it very clear that the territory of the USSR, as was, sits on a huge amount of natural resources which are vital for the interests of the American capitalist class. Now, they don't say capitalist class, but when a capitalist government writes a document spouting stuff about national interests, what they mean is the interests of their capitalist class. Now, the Wolfowitz Memorandum is a very useful document because you can look at it and then you can compare the strategy outlined within with the subsequent policies of every American government. And you'll find that every American government, uh, every American presidency, no matter which party stripe they nominally wear, has followed this policy on every single 
issue. Now, why is that? Is it because, as some people believe, that the neocons are this shady, all-powerful group that control the American government? Or is it that the neocons are just the most open expression of the needs of American imperialism? And I favour the latter explanation, because it doesn't matter whether Paul Wolfowitz, Dick Cheney, or their offspring, political or otherwise, are in an administration. The writing of Wolfowitz back then was just a very blunt expression of the needs of American imperialism and the needs of American imperialism for perpetual expansion into new markets, the domination of new areas of the world that are rich in natural resources and the seeking out of new sources of labor to hyper-exploit all over the world. That uh, ceaseless quest for what is referred to now as unipolarity, which, uh, or the, the idea of the United States being the sole global hegemon and the leader and the organizer of the international order. This is a reflection of the fact that post the end of the Soviet Union, uh, the American state decided to preside over or needed to preside over an international system whereby it benefited from being able to exploit resources anywhere in the world, being able to exploit labor anywhere in the world, and to not have any barrier uh, that would hold them back in terms of their ability to do this. This is what the policy towards Russia, China, and everywhere else has expressed. And it is only now, after years of the relative decline of the American ruling class in terms of their power and their ability to actually project that power into the world, that we are now starting to see the fall of the American empire. It is a slow process that will go on for many years, but it is a process which is nevertheless very much underway. And this goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about the possibilities of peace talks, because for all that the shouting and the scream about Ukrainian victory in Kherson has been going on, no such victory has been achieved. The Russians have suffered political defeats where they've withdrawn from Kiev, from Kharkov, and now from Kherson. But this represents an evolution of the military tactics pursued in the war. The initial phase had one objective, which was to force either a collapse of the Maidan regime or the second option, which is to uh, force a some kind of settlement that would recognize the independence of Donetsk and Lukansk People's Republics and then would freeze the conflict. This also failed. And now the Russians are reorganizing themselves in order to take the rest of Donetsk and Lukansk and then will proceed from there. So what are the chances of some kind of deal or breakthrough? Uh, if you look at what has been going on with the attempted diplomacy, allegedly, of Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, or the talks that have been confirmed to be going on between Burns and Narishkin. Well, the talks between Burns and Narishkin were said to be about nuclear de-escalation and it wasn't about Ukraine at all. Well, that's probably a lie. Uh, there's no way that the heads of the foreign intelligence services of the United States and the Russian Federation will meet and discuss without mentioning, of course, the major source of conflict between the two. So what I would guess that that was probably about was a discussion over the, potentially, uh, the dirty bomb issue that the Russians raised, which, of course, the United States denied, but then of course, behind the scenes, there was this flurry of activity. And I would suggest also that the way in which this meeting was structured is about 
really the United States, through the figure of Burns, who of course is a former ambassador to the Russian Federation, he speaks Russian, he has been one of the few people who had advised Obama that the backing of the Maidan was a bad idea, that the expansion of NATO was going to cause problems uh, with regard to relations with the Russian Federation. But of course, causing problems with the relationship with Russia was of course exactly what long-time U.S. policy actually dictates and what it requires. So Burns is obviously a man who is a career servant of U.S. imperialism. He's just a slightly more level-headed one than some of the rabid people inside the Biden administration. And what I suggest that he will be doing in Ankara is finding ways in which to manage the conflict in Ukraine so it doesn't escalate to a direct war between the Russians and the Americans. And this makes a fair degree of sense, in the sense that even the craziest people inside the Biden administration and the wider Congress probably don't want a nuclear war. They, fools that they are, think that if they just act tough enough that the Russians will back down. This is proving to be wrong, and the fact that it is proving to be wrong is why Burns is in Ankara talking to Narishkin. So what they, I think, will be doing... They will be trying to find ways in which they can de-escalate situations, uh, avoid direct conflicts between Russian and American forces, and share certain pieces of information between the two of them. That is what they think that they will be establishing in Ankara. And as to whether they can find any sort of peace deal, I don't think that that is on the cards. I don't think that any kind of peace deal will be possible before the Russians have established total control over the regions that they have incorporated into Russia, and that includes a return to Kherson. And I don't think that the Biden administration has achieved a consensus within itself as to what the way forward is. They clearly have a tendency or a faction within them which wants to find a way out of this, but that is also balanced by other tendencies within the administration that wants to carry on the path that they are on now, believing that they can continue to inflict political, at least, defeats on the Russians and that this can destabilize the government in Moscow. And they will have been encouraged in this by the Russian reaction, at least in the social media sphere. I don't think that this bleeds too much into actual uh, Russian real life. But given that these people in the think tanks and the policymaking rooms in Washington, D.C., are as um, compulsively online as the most enthusiastic TikToker, then they will be looking at the response on Russian Telegram especially, and the howls of despair that have come out of it, and the gnashing of teeth, and they will be encouraged by this and think, well, if we can inflict even just big symbolic political defeats on the Russians, even if they don't, the Ukrainians don't actually win many battles, then we can keep the, this up. And that's the thing to bear in mind. The strategy that the US has been pursuing with regard to this war, and of course with Ukraine, since at least the Orange Revolution, so-called revolution, back in 2004, has been one whereby they seek to use Ukraine in order to destabilize Russia. 
And this can be achieved even if the Ukrainian army doesn't win a single victory on the battlefield, even if all that they do is inflict political defeats on the Russian Federation because the Ukrainians just keep going and throwing men into the meat grinder, whereas the Russian Federation government, as I suggested on the broadcast I did two days ago, is more concerned about casualties. They are more concerned about the domestic response inside Russia itself, and they are more worried about the destabilizing effects of the war. However, Russian opinion has only solidified as the conflict has gone on, and it has moved in support of more radical measures to actually end the war on Russia's terms. So it would seem that the Russian population was actually far out ahead in terms of what they were willing to do than the actual government of the Russian Federation itself was, and which is, of course, a good reason why the plans of the State Department and others to destabilize Russia through this war won't actually work. The opinion is much stronger in favor of pursuing a war until a victory over the Ukrainian puppet regime uh, than it is towards um, fracturing away from the decision to support the so-called special military operation or support for Putin. Support for Putin's never been higher, even if there is, of course, frustration and anger towards the oligarchy and the Russian elite within all sections of uh, the Russian working class and indeed large sections of the middle class. So there there is, though, the fact that this political defeat has been inflicted through Kherson, which has encouraged, of course, the most aggressive tendencies in Washington to pursue their tactics uh, of continuing the war to the last Ukrainian. Which, of course, brings us to the actual statements given out by Zelensky. Now, Zelensky has said uh, that he is ready for peace. He said this when he went down to do a photo op in Kherson just yesterday, on Monday the 14th. So he said that, but then today at the G20 meeting, he said, no peace, no deal, unless Russia withdraws and pays reparations. There's no talk, of course, of the United States or uh, the other European powers paying reparations to the people of Donbass, who have been shelled and shot and murdered for eight years by the NATO forces um, that make up the Ukrainian army. So, again, the cocaine clown posse in Kiev say various different things at various different points in time. Bear in mind, the Americans do hold the purse strings, and so therefore have got Zelensky's balls and a vice. But, of course, Zelensky isn't really in charge of anything. He's a front man, but he's pulled in several different directions. The Americans have the ability, if they chose to, to say, show's over, go and sign a deal with the with the Russians, and then we'll take you to your exile in Florida or Israel or wherever the hell he'd go into exile. But of course, there are many forces inside Ukraine that are influenced by different uh, outside uh, forces and influences, and also the internal contradictions within the Ukrainian regime, which requires Zelensky to take several different stances on almost the same day. So he'll say peace one day, then he'll say no peace till victory the next day, then he'll say peace only if Putin goes the day after that, then he'll probably hit the Colombian white stuff very hard and say no peace, only victory, march to Moscow, brothers, for the glory of Rivendell, oh, or something like that. So the contradictory statements of Zelensky reflect the fact that he is all over the place because he's being pulled in several different directions at the same time. Now, when it comes down to it, and if the political and, of course, the economic crisis inside the United States and Europe gets worse, which it is going to, ultimately, the United States may decide, well, 
we've had a good run on this, but show's over, then Zelensky will share the fate of Ashraf Ghani, uh, running out of the presidential palace with briefcases full of money to go into a very well-remunerated exile. So never mistake what is going on in Kiev with the uh, with the cocaine clown posse for the actions of a real government. What you have there is the squabbling of the puppets of the United States who are starting to suspect that the US may be getting ready to do the uh, the full Ashraf Ghani on them. So the contradictory positions that they enunciate are a reflection of that. So to reiterate, I don't think that there is a deal that can be signed at this stage. I think the talks of Burns and Narishkin are about managing the conflict between the US and Russia so it doesn't go nuclear or doesn't escalate in a dangerous way. I don't think that this talk that keeps coming out of the US force going in with Romanians and Poles into Western Ukraine is something that is going to materialize because Again, I think the only way that such a force could enter into Western Ukraine is if the Russians agreed to it. And the Russians will not agree to that until their objectives have been achieved. And so before that, there can be no question of that happening. And the Americans do not want to get into a shooting war with the Russians. So this will not occur. Turning then to the recent news of the bomb attack in Istanbul on Istiklal Avenue, which is one of the major uh, commercial centres in Istanbul. Uh, it's a street I've walked down myself, actually, last time I was there a number of years ago. The bombing itself, which uh, happened on uh, Sunday of the week, killed six and wounded 81. And the interesting thing about this is the way in which the various responses afterwards have come out. The Turkish interior minister, Soleiman Soylu, said in a statement at the scene on Monday that he did not accept the condolences of the US ambassador because he knew, uh, speaking for the Turkish government, that he knew who was responsible for it, which is coming very close to saying that the US is directly responsible for this. Now, what has subsequently transpired is that the Turkish authorities have arrested a suspect who is a woman who was caught on camera leaving the device that exploded in place on Istiklal Avenue. And the Turkish authorities are claiming that this was some a, an attack that was carried out by the PKK and aligned forces, and that the woman who planted the bomb had received training from the United States. Now, uh, they're most specifically saying that this is a act carried out by the PKK in alliance with the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Kurdish-led group in northern Syria. So, is any of this true? We don't know at this stage. This is, of course, the enduring uh, conflict and obsession of the Turkish government to eliminate the PKK and all of its aligned groups. PKK, of course, stands for the uh, Kurdistan Workers' Party, which has run a very long insurgency inside eastern Turkey and what is they refer to as Kurdistan and which of course has a role in the Syrian civil war being one of the major elements of the Syrian democratic forces which are of course a Kurdish-led grouping which has been allied with the United States since around about 2014. And this is something which, by the way, a lot of uh, leftists who have aligned themselves with the SDF conveniently ignore. There is, of course, the interesting side note here, which is that 
volunteers for the SDF that have come from America in particular, but also Britain, have popped up again inside Ukraine fighting for Azov and other Banderist neo-fascist formations. It seems a rather strange career trajectory. And if you go back and listen to the interview that I did with a former Morningstar writer and now a correspondent for RT, Steve Sweeney, he lays out in uh, quite stark terms that there is a clear uh, trajectory of the uh, SDF to Azov um, transfer, uh, which has seen several of these uh, foreign mercenaries go from one to the other. And you might ask, well, how the hell can you go from fighting for what's supposed to be a, uh, a pseudo-anarchist, though not really, um, collection of Kurdish fighters in northern Syria to fighting with a bunch of uh, banderist slash neo-fascist reactionaries in Ukraine? Well, the common thread is, of course, U.S. imperialism, which is who these people ultimately serve. But that's a slight digression. The Turks, of course, uh, the Turkish authorities are keen to blame the PKK and, of course, justify potential renewed uh, counterinsurgency activity and repression inside Turkey itself. Erdogan has an election coming up next year, which might be difficult for him, given that there has been significant trouble in the Turkish economy over the past couple of years, uh, which has manifested in the hyperinflation that they've been suffering from. Having a rally round the flag moment from this bombing attack and pinning it on the old enemy of the Turkish government, the PKK, doesn't do him any harm, politically speaking. But what is the probability that the US was involved in this in some way? Well, I doubt Biden knew about it or even most members of his administration. In fact, I doubt Biden knows much other than whatever the hell the cue card or the earpiece is feeding him. But it is worth just exploring a little bit about the rather tense and complex relationship that the Turkish ruling class and been the figure of Erdogan and the AKP party and the Americans have had since the coming to power of the AKP over 20 years ago now. Now you'll remember if you've got a memory which is a controversial thing to have these days uh, that in the earliest stages of the AKP government there was a clash between the Bush administration and Erdogan and the former president of Turkey, uh, one of Erdogan's political comrades from the AKP, uh, Abdullah Gul, when he was president, the Turkish government denied the US forces the right to use Turkey as a staging post for the invasion of Iraq from the north of the country. Their stated concern here was that this would strengthen the Kurdish forces on both sides of the Turkey-Iraq border. And so the denial of the uh, right of the U.S. forces to use Turkey as a staging ground for their invasion caused a lot of problems. Of course, it's problems that the Bush administration got around. But I remember at the time there was a lot of frantic diplomacy being carried out by the State Department, trying to persuade Erdogan and Abdullah Gul to allow them to use Turkey as a staging ground for their invasion. This didn't work, ultimately. And that was the first sign that the AKP government, headed ultimately by Erdogan, would be not exactly compliant in terms of the requests or demands of the US. Now, this doesn't mean, as of course uh, many have pointed out, that Erdogan is some sort of great anti-imperialist or that he's a great enemy of US imperialism. No. When it comes down to shared interests, Erdogan will go along with the US as he did in Syria, enthusiastically so as it turned out. 
So the game that was played in Syria of the US and, and of course the Turks backing the Salafist rebel groups all the way across Syria was of course something that Erdogan was deeply invested in and involved in, even doing oil trading with ISIS. And that was according to even reports that were featured on CNN's Turkish outlet. So they were deeply enmeshed in this. But at the same time, there was also a creeping problem between the uh, US and Turkish governments, which was that Erdogan kept pursuing his own agenda. It wasn't always the same agenda as the United States. And this led him to, after the assassination of the Russian ambassador to Turkey, Andrei Karlov, who was shot dead by an off-duty Turkish police officer all the way back in 2016, now, the interesting thing about this was that the stated motivation of the assassin, Mevlut Altintas, was, of course, the Russian involvement in the uh, Syrian civil war. But the more interesting thing is the statements made by both Erdogan and Putin uh, immediately after the assassination, following talks between the two of them. Now, both men, both presidents, said that the assassin... Um, was not acting alone, wasn't a lone wolf. Uh, Erdogan, in a story on Reuters from the time, was quoted as saying the following, um, that this was an action carried out by those who wished to um, harm ties between Turkey and Russia, and that he agreed that this was an act of provocation uh, he, uh, by those who were looking to harm the relations of our countries. And again, this was reported by both Reuters and the Washington Post at the time. And Putin also said at the time that it was a provocation aimed at uh, spoiling the normalization of Russo-Turkish relations and spoiling the Syrian peace process, which is actively being pursued by Russia, Turkey, Iran and others. So the interesting thing here is that, of course, clearly both men had spoken to each other extensively and agreed the line that they were going to take. It is interesting that they both cited that it was an act motivated by some other force to train wreck the normalization of uh, Russo-Turkish relations. So if you have to re you have to recall that at the time in 2016 this is just after the, uh, the beginning of the decisive intervention of Russian forces inside the Syrian civil war whereby they had hurled back uh, ISIS and the other rebel groups and were aiding the Syrian government in taking back territory to the point where the overwhelming majority of the country is now controlled by the Syrian government headed by President Assad and uh, the remaining parts of the country that are outside of Syrian government control are the bits that are of course occupied by Turkish forces, the small parts occupied by the remnants of ISIS and of course the parts occupied by the United States which is stealing the oil and the wheat from Syria. Funny how that never get, gets mentioned. So the, what was going on in 2016 was that clearly the war that Erdogan and others had pursued had gone wrong. Uh, Erdogan was already in the process of having a series of falling outs with uh, the current U.S. administration headed by Obama. And after the shooting down of a Russian aircraft by Turkish air defense, the two leaders, uh, Putin and Erdogan, decided to essentially improve the relationship between the two of them, and neither of them really wanted um, any kind of war between the two countries. And of course, shortly after that, the 
Turks agreed to purchase the S-400 air defense system, which is reputedly the best in the world. The Americans flew into a rage about this. Seems very petty, but then again, this is a very petty thing that often sets off disputes between the, these countries. More specifically, it was a straying outside of the usual agreements that NATO countries abide by, which is that they buy all of their equipment from the United States. Essentially, NATO is a way of the United States uh, forever boosting its weapons industry, or that's one of the reasons NATO continues to exist anyway. So with this mending of relations between the Russians and the Turks in 2016, the, both the assassination of the Russian ambassador happens, and also in mid-2016, you get the attempted coup against Erdogan, which has always been a very strange thing, which has never really been explored in detail, uh, in certainly not in the Western media. But if you recall at the time, the tanks and troops hit the streets of Istanbul and Ankara, and this is when Erdogan himself was out of the capital on holiday. And this coup was interesting because it wasn't associated with the traditional political uh, orientation within the Turkish armed forces, which had been largely crushed by Erdogan in a series of trials which he'd put on in the early 2010s, which purged the uh, Kemalists' uh, secularist tendencies from the armed forces and promoted those more in line with Erdogan's thinking or personally loyal to Erdogan himself. But... What was going on, according to the Turkish government, was that there was a network operating inside Turkey itself, which was headed by a man named Fethullah Gulen, who had been a former ally of Erdogan, which uh, there had been a falling out between the two men. Gulen had gone into exile inside the United States. He lives in Pennsylvania now. And Erdogan and his allies alleged that this was the man who was behind the coup attempt in 2016 and that the U.S. was harboring him. And so the coup attempt was rapidly defeated because they didn't have enough of the armed forces to actually go ahead. And they ultimately were, a lot of them were rounded up and killed. Many of the leaders were in prison. The organization that was allegedly behind it was something called the Council for Peace at Home, or the Peace Council. And one of the major supporters behind uh, this uh, coup was apparently uh, the Egyptian military regime, headed, of course, by Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Also, there was an implication by the Turkish authorities that the UAE may have had something to do with it. But behind that ultimately stands um, the government of the United States. And I remember watching on television at the time the live coverage and uh, Obama's very strange and non-committal statement about it. And it, it implied that he wasn't really that bothered. Uh, now, of course, the Russians, the Venezuelans and others rushed to support Erdogan and declare their support for the elected leader of the country. The interesting thing that happened is, of course, after this, the relations between the United States and Turkey got more strained because, of course, the United States refused to hand over Gulen, who uh, lives in a compound in Pennsylvania and appears to be a very valuable asset to certain elements within the U.S. state. And the 
relationship between the two countries continued to deteriorate. At the same time, of course, it must be emphasised that Erdogan plays every single side he can possibly find. Like, he's not leaving NATO or uh, he hasn't even withdrawn the Turkish interest in the EU as yet, though he may find that it's an institution which has disappeared before it'll let him in. All of this is to say that the relationship between the Turkish government and the US is complex and tense at best at the moment. And even though they collaborate with each other on various different things, there is also a growing alienation between the two. And this all stems from the fact that um, Erdogan, whatever else he is, a reactionary, uh, of course an anti-communist, of course uh, anti-socialist, a man who's been implicated in many crimes. But what he isn't is just um, a straight-up stooge. Um, He's not um, just a leader of a pure comprador regime. He pursues the interests of Turkish capitalism, uh, even when this leads him into conflict with uh, the United States itself. And so, to return to the bombing, is there a likelihood of any kind of involvement from the United States? As I said earlier uh, when talking about this, the Biden administration probably knows nothing about it. Is there some element of the American security services which would like to create problems for Erdogan? Absolutely there is. And they have active involvement in northern Syria. They have many connections with not just the Kurdish groups there, but various Islamist organizations with whom, again, Erdogan and the Turkish government have had a complicated relationship, often being uh, allies of them, often aiding them and funding them. And the ultimate um, upshot of this is, of course, these groups often being used as auxiliaries by the Turkish government in places like Libya and, of course, in the Karabakh in the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan a couple of years ago. But he's, of course, fallen out with them, or the Turkish government has certainly fallen out with them more recently, uh, as part of the ongoing bargaining between the Turkish government and the Russians. The Turks have been slowly distancing themselves from the so-called moderate rebels, as they used to be referred to, in northern Syria. And, of course, this has led to a lot of bitterness erupting between the two. So it's conceivable that this bomb may have come from them. It may have come from elements inside the SDF, perhaps. I can't see it being a direct plot of the PKK. I can't see what they would gain from doing this. But the US has access to plenty of people who would be motivated to do this. There doesn't need to be a direct US fingerprint on it. They have a lot of assets who, of course, aren't US citizens. So what the Turks are saying is possible. And if it is uh, proven to be correct that they had some role in this, then it's another blow against um, the reputation of the United States if they are now seen to be uh, carrying out actions against NATO allies. Now, again, you have to look at the US administration as a contradictory beast. There is the civilian head of the US federal government, which is, of course, Biden, nominally, uh, or Trump before him, or Obama. But the interesting thing is that, of course, both Trump and Obama made it pretty clear in what Obama did in his memoirs, Trump does in tweets, rants, statements, that they're not fully in control of this thing. That there is a there's a permanent bureaucracy, a deep state, if you will, within the US government, which operates on a policy which, as I said earlier, when we're talking about the Wolfowitz Memorandum of 92, this part of the American state operates according to the interests of US imperialism, as they understand it. And they do not 
often respect or pay any attention to the civilian rulers of the United States. This was expressed most vividly and most straightforwardly by a gentleman by the name of Vindman, if you recall him, Alexander Vindman, a colonel, I believe, in the U.S. Army and a man who worked in the Pentagon, who said in the second impeachment trial of Trump, of course, Vindman is Ukrainian in origin, that Trump was going against U.S. foreign policy. And the interesting thing is that he wasn't the only one who said that. Various other officials said similar things. Of course, this essentially removes uh, the constitutional power of the president to set U.S. foreign policy, because if the officials in the Pentagon and the State Department don't respect or have any intention of carrying out the will of the elected president, then it rather makes the U.S. Constitution into a bit of a joke. But this is indeed what has been going on, not just under Trump, but under multiple presidents going back many years, because these people are the ones who often have their hands on the actual levers of power. A president can set a direction, he can make a speech, but to actually pursue an objective. So, for instance, If a US president did want to end the circus in Ukraine and bring the bloody thing to a conclusion, then he could do that, but he would need an awful lot of political capital. He'd need to have firm control of the House and Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He'd need a majority in both the House and the Senate, probably. Uh, I would also need to have firm control over his own administration, over the US military, and of course over the CIA and the various other different intelligence agencies and a determination to push forward with this plan no matter what the cost and to bulldoze out of the way opposition. There's no such uh, figure in US politics who would be determined to take that amount of uh, risk in order to make peace with the Russians. There may be one who comes along in the future if the situation gets worse, but even Trump's mild attempts at changing policy was too much for these people. So when it comes to saying the question of US guilt over the Turkish bombing attack or even something like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline attacks, the question isn't whether there was some US involvement at some level. Clearly there is. The question is how in control is the US government of all this myriad of agencies and interconnected um, intelligence assets and various different terror groups that the US has a hand in? And the answer is usually not very much. So it could well be that there is some US involvement at some level in this attack in Turkey. Don't expect it to uh, engage the Turkish government in some kind of massive policy change or them walking out of NATO or something, NATO is going to slowly disintegrate um, over the coming years. This is almost certain now. So this is a situation to keep an eye on, especially the response of Erdogan and others in the Turkish government. If they continue to insist that there was US involvement in some way, it's certainly going to do no good to Turkish-US relations. Final two points today come from statements made by leaders of different communist parties. And communist parties about whom you wouldn't normally hear much if you're paying attention to even the Western allegedly Marxist uh, press and media. And that's uh, statements made by the uh, first secretary of the Communist Party of Ukraine, Pietro Simonenko, and I'll later go on to cover some comments made recently by uh, the secretary general of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, uh, Gennady Zuganov. But Simonenko recently spoke at the 22nd meeting of the Communist and Workers' Party, and this was a summit held in Cuba. And he said a number of interesting things. Now, I will point out that the Communist Party of Ukraine 
used to get a significant vote in the Ukrainian election until, of course, 2014. They used to have uh, significant representation in the old Ukrainian parliament. After, of course, the reactionary coup in 2014, the Communist Party was banned and most of its prominent members were either arrested or driven into exile. So Simonenko uh, said a couple of interesting things in this speech in uh, Vanna. He observed the effects of the collapse of the Soviet Union on Ukraine, the removal of Ukrainian industry, uh, the turning of it into essentially a site of resource extraction by the Western imperialists who established almost full control over it from at least 2004 onwards, and after 2014 achieved total dominance over it. And the effect uh, Simonenko observes is the widespread lumpenization of Ukrainian society. Uh, this is the effect of deindustrialization, the smashing of uh, communist and socialist parties, the heavy restriction on trade unionism, the dismantling of working class political organizations, the conscious attempts to depoliticize and smash the the advanced elements of the working class in Ukraine all leads to extensive lumpenization, which is, of course, the ground upon which uh, banderism, neo-fascism grows. Because, of course, in order to fully dominate Ukraine and turn it into just a, uh, essentially a colony of the West, of the specifically the United States and the British, then they needed to destroy all of the organizations of the working class, destroy the consciousness of the working class, destroy the knowledge that the working class has of itself as a class almost, and fracture it into a thousand pieces. And only on this ground can the uh, rotten roots of fascism and banderism and the other forms of various different uh, ultra-reactionary ideologies take root. And so that's an interesting reflection from the leader of a party that was very much a major player in Ukrainian politics until, of course, the coup in 2014. And Simonenko's words are never going to be reported on ITV or Sky News anytime soon. I will link to the speech in the show description so you can read it for yourselves. It's a very interesting reflection. I also wanted to highlight a recent uh, address given by the leader of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, Gennady Zyuganov. And he made this speech recently at a meeting of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. And it contains some interesting reflections within it upon the um, nature of the conflict in Ukraine, but also upon the, uh, the nature of the attitude towards this war that the Russian ruling class are showing. So I'll quote a couple of things from this address because it's worth paying attention to this. First of all, on the question of war itself, uh, Zuganov makes a comment which is very correct, which is, he says, There is a discussion in Russian society about the nature of the military operation in Ukraine. Marxist-Leninists tend to define the nature of war concretely. They can be aggressive, but they can also be liberating, anti-fascist, anti-colonial, and domestic. So, he makes an important distinction there, which is worth bearing in mind, which is, of course, unlike pacifists, Marxist-Leninists don't see war as something which is just a universal evil. Uh, of course, it always has devastating impacts, but uh, a war can be lead to liberation. It can lead to the overthrow of oppressive systems. It can lead to the throwing out of colonizers. So it's important not to take the pacifist line on this. But more specifically, I wanted to draw your attention to uh, 
comments he made about uh, the war in Ukraine specifically. Now, he says a number of things which are undoubtedly true. Um, he says, for instance, that, and again, I'm quoting directly from the speech, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic developed powerfully and became one of the largest economies in Europe. That is true. After declaring independence, Kiev fell into bondage to the imperialists of the West. In 2014, a coup d'etat was carried out. The United States has invested $5 billion in it. Neo-Nazis came to power. Victory over Fascism Day has been cancelled. Monuments to Lenin and anti-fascist heroes. The figures of our common culture were destroyed. Bloody executioners are hailed as heroes. Streets and squares are named after. The Donbass could not accept this. The DPR and the LPR emerged as an embodied initiative of the masses. Now, what he says there about the economy of Ukraine is very true. In 1991, just prior to the independence of Ukraine, which was, by the way, something that was cooked up by a group of corrupt former leaders of the old Communist Party of the Soviet Union, who declared independence following us a vote by the Ukrainian population to stay within a reformed Soviet Union. So worth bearing that in mind. But Ukraine had a very extensive industrial base, which was, of course, linked into the wider planned economy of the USSR and also outside of it to the economies of the old uh, Warsaw Pact states. And this heavily industrialized economy with a lot of um, skilled workers within it was completely destroyed by 30 years of so-called independence. All that happened was the comprador bourgeoisie, who emerged in Ukraine, sold everything off other than um, the most immediately profitable sectors. Because, of course, to turn what had been state-run economies into profitable capitalist economies would take an awful lot of investment. And, of course, these um, parasitic oligarchs didn't want to do any of that. They just wanted to cash in. So it was actually more profitable to close down and gut Ukrainian industry, which, of course, leads to the collapse of the Ukrainian population as people fled and the turning of the state into just a expression of the whims of American imperialism and the complete domination of it by American imperialism. So the capitalist class in Ukraine, such as it is, has had 30 years to try and make a success of capitalism. And they've had a big success in terms of their bank accounts. But in terms of the social development of Ukraine, all it has done, as Zuganov states here, is send the whole society backwards by, well, almost a century. So the other thing I wanted to draw attention uh, to was his comments on the uh, Russian ruling class and their attitude towards the war in Ukraine. So he says as follows, The Russian oligarchy is a comparable one. It is in no hurry to support the special operation even now when the West takes away their yachts and freezes their bank accounts. The Communist Party of the Russian Federation has no sympathy for those who rob Russia and now lose their loot. He also goes on to say, and again I'm quoting directly, The Communist Party is critical of the foreign policy of the Russian leadership. We said stop when the authorities agreed to NATO exercises in the Nizhny Novgorod region and the alliance's air base near Ulyanovsk. We condemned the lack of attention to the CIS countries. We demanded not to forget our allies and firmly supported Lukashenko. Now, what he's referring to here is, of course, what the Communist Party of the Russian Federation has been saying for a very long time, which is, of course, that the Russian leadership is too weak in the face of aggression from the NATO countries, has made too many concessions, has gone along with the NATO countries far too often. And the point he's making in this is, of course, that the um, reason for this is that the Russian capitalist class itself has been, for a very long time, a class of 
pure compradors and that even though Putin has had to take Bonapartist measures against some of these, the overwhelming majority of the Russian bourgeoisie still did not want this war and have only been dragged to it reluctantly. As I was saying on the program the other day when talking about why um, it's taking so long for the Russian armed forces and state to finally move in the right direction it's because the ruling class the capitalist class in russia really didn't want to actually go down this road and he's only he's being pushed down it essentially by external pressure from u.s imperialism which will not allow even the slightest uh, development of a russian state that becomes more powerful than it was in the basket case era of the yeltsin time but also because of the pressure from the russian world working class and elements of the Russian middle class that are enraged by what has been done to people they regard as their own in terms of the people in their Donbass, the ethnic Russians and Russian speakers, and want to defend them. And the, the government headed by Putin has been pushed to take more radical action. And it was, of course, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation that introduced the bill into the State Duma that um, recognized the independence of the Donetsk and Lukansk People's Republics. And Zuganov also makes the point that there's been many uh, comrades of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation that have gone to the DPR and the LPR over the last eight years and have fought in this war and were doing so long before the Russian government actually wanted to have anything to do with it. Remember, Putin, as, of course, the leader of the Russian government, insisted that the DPR and the LPR sign the Minsk I and Minsk II uh, peace accords with the uh, regime in Kiev, which, of course, as former President Poroshenko has said recently, the Kiev government had no intention of actually following those accords, and the United States had no intention of following them either. It was all buying time to build up their military. Military force. So this is an interesting reflection from the leader of the the largest party outside of Putin's ruling group in Russia. So I would encourage you to read this. It's best read if you run it through um, a translation device or using the Yandex, the Russian search engine, because the translation on there is more accurate. So I will link to this in the show description. But I wanted to highlight both that and the words of Simonenko, because these aren't uh, the words you're going to read in Western press or even some of the Marxist organizations anytime soon. So it's vital to get an understanding of how the communist forces inside Russia and the, those who, which had been a powerful force inside Ukraine are looking at the situation. So that is all I have time for today. I'll be back again with another update tomorrow. Until then, you can find more of the programs that I've done recently on the archive on our Patreon page and also the recent Q&A I did for patrons on there, of which there will be another part next week. We've also got coming up soon the next part of the ongoing series, A Marxist History of World War II, where I'll be covering the French collapse of 1940 and asking the question why it happened and what were the forces that created that uh, horrific defeat. So I hope you'll join me for that. But until tomorrow, thank you for listening.